My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to the Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Every day, we keep having the same debate about the health of the economy. And it makes you feel like we're balanced. We're balanced on the edge of a knife. But after a session where the Dow dropped 160 points. Sell, sell, sell. The S&P VAC slid 0.49%. And the NASDAQ lost 0.80%. Really ugly day. You need to understand that the economy doesn't work like that. It's not like we're teetering between good and bad. As long as employment stays strong, we're going to have one set of good numbers from domestic companies that are doing just fine. As long as the trade war continues, we'll have another set of bad numbers from companies that are hostage to the global economy and are beginning to do terribly. Today, the bad set went out when the Chinese trade delegation went home early instead of hanging out with some farmers in Montana. Suddenly, the market rolled over because a lot of investors believed that until the Big sky country darkened. We reminded me close to a deal. But there's no accord on the horizon. I keep telling you that. If China won't even do something as low stakes as this farm visit, hence today's sell-off. As I've told you repeatedly, it's going to be a lot harder to reach an accommodation with the People's Republic than many people seem to think. You know what? That's a good place to start our game plan for next week. Because I think there could be a lot of very important news this very weekend that may impact Monday's trading. For example, there's going to be a news in Hong Kong. For months now, we've been seeing riots in the streets every weekend, as the people of Hong Kong don't seem to be too thrilled about being a virtual colony of the People's Republic. So far, the Communist Party has shown an unusual level of restraint, don't you think? But now we're getting mighty close to the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic formation, October 1st, a very important day in China. I think the military may start taking a more aggressive posture beginning this weekend. They don't want these embarrassing protests to continue during an important milestone for the regime. What else? On Monday, we'll get estimates buy brokerage houses on how well Apple's new iPhone, the 11, is selling. I suspect the numbers will be put in a disappointing light, even if they're good, because the expectations have gotten a little unrealistic going to the launch. Honestly, though, that's not the important part part of the story. What really matters is all the new service revenue and the new watch. I picked one up today. I cannot believe how easy it is. It's much better face than this. It's a lot easier to scroll through. Anyway. It's flying off the shelves. When I visited CEO Tim Cook and his team at the newly renovated store on Fifth Avenue today, I had a blast looking at all the new products. Do you know that 900 people work at this 24-hour wonder of a store? Still got the same Steve Jobs design cube, by the way. Doesn't matter. We know how these launches work. The most negative voices will be the loudest, and the stock's likely to get hit. I think it already started with the stock down more than 3 bucks today. Don't be shaken out. Like I always tell you, own Apple, don't trade it. Although I believe you will be tested, solely tested again next week by the Apple bashers who always come out on the woodwork when the phone is in, let's say, selling in the first five days. And then, of course, now we've got the chartists who smell a broken chart. Sheesh. All right, Tuesday should be good. 
because we hear from a host of domestic companies. Yes, domestic consumer-oriented companies. And I think they're actually in excellent shape. And then we're going to get results from CarMax, the used car dealer, and then AutoZone, the do-it-yourself auto parts chain that keeps buying back the stock in an incredible, lacquered pace. pace. Uh, now, look, both stocks have been big winners. However, sometimes these two tend to trade badly on the day they report, even in the wake of strong numbers. They only start rallying after the initial dip. If you like CarMax or if you like AutoZone, I would buy some before they report and some right into their swoons. I am endorsing that. We hear from Nike after the close. And this stock's been held back because of worries about a potential slowdown in China or the U.S. No one knows where. Management hasn't been able to fully put it to rest no matter what they do. I see no evidence of either slowdown. And I bet Nike's shares could soar if they just say things remain strong around the globe. You want the best company that most people have never heard of that's going to report this week? There's a sleeper company called Cintas. Sometimes you see the trucks on the road. Cintas is the uniform rental service. A little over two years ago, Cintas was allowed, bizarrely, to merge with its main rival. We immediately, of course, championed it because we love monopolies. And the stock's been an awesome performer ever since. The job market's still strong. I think we're going to get another terrific quarter. Wednesday, we get a read on housing. When long-term interest rates plummeted over the summer, a lot of people assumed that housing would come right back. But we haven't really seen that until very recently, like yesterday's robust existing home sales number. You know what? That's good news for an old Kramer fave, KB Home, which reports in the afternoon. The stock just made a new 52-week high today, so it's not exactly undiscovered. But even after this run, the home builders remain cheap. Still, I expect KB to sell off after earnings because the analysts had to be very critical of this one. They don't seem to like the way it's run. Not me. I've liked it since 14. I like it double. What else? We have two critical analyst meetings on Wednesday, too. Best Buy and VF Corp. Both companies are uniquely tied to the domestic economy. I bet they say very good things. Best Buy is selling lots of gadgets, and it might give us some insight, by the way, into the iPhone 11. VF Corp is the strongest apparel play, and if the van story stays hot, their sneaker business can carry the whole darn company. Like them both. Thursday, we hear from Accenture, A-C-N. By the way, if you ever try to put it in, spell check always makes it be C-A-N. So you got to, like, back up and do A-C-N, A-C-N. you got to do it twice. And this, this uh, stock has been a horse with periodic dips that usually coincide with the day it reports. That's right. They report, and it's suddenly like, it's like doing well, doing well, doing boom. And that's where you gotta, you got to buy, okay? <laughs> now, ConAgra reports, too. And this one's a real conundrum. Great management. Good brilliance. Iffy results. I think they figured out what's wrong. I think they can nail this quarter. I really do. I really do. After the close, we have the most controversial quarter of the week, and it's, it's Micron, the commodity semiconductor name. They make uh, Flash and DRAM. Several analysts bullet this morning, claiming that its two key products are actually turning positive, or they use the term inflecting. They never want to say turn positive. They always say inflecting. But this stock's had a remarkable run. So unless Micron says they're seeing strong demand for both Flash and for DRAMs, I think the stock's gains are going to be rolled back, especially if they mention anything about trade tensions in China. That'd be the kiss of death. Why is Micron so important? Simple. It makes the basic building blocks that go into almost every device you can imagine. There could be huge, and I'm talking about monster pin action off this one. So you need to parse everything the company says and take any usually positive commentary with a grain of salt. I think the long knives are out for the stock at this level. I mean, I detect it. Long knives. Micron. There's no such thing as a lock in this business. 
I mean, there's nothing like you, you know, take the pats and give zero. Uh, but I'll tell you that on Friday, Boston Scientific holds an analyst meeting. This medical device maker rarely misses and almost always has some new breakthroughs that they announce at these meetings. I am a huge fan of the device business. You know, Abbott's my fave. I think I'm a big backer of Edwards Life Sciences. How about Medtronic in January where I had to keep, where I had to tell the CEO that he should like a stock more? Now, there's no economic sensitivity here for uh, Boston Scientific. No China worries. Halcyon. One last thing. A bunch of Fed heads talk next week, and I'm begging you not to listen to them or any reportage about them. See, I had a rule that served me well for many years. Never pay attention to the droning of any Federal Reserve official who speaks within two weeks after the Fed has already spoken. There's never anything revelatory. It's just a bunch of pop-offs who confuse you. The Fed just spoke two days ago, for heaven's sake. Don't let these guys throw you off with their jibber-jabber and their faux drama. I have said for years that they shouldn't even be allowed to talk as individuals because you know why? The individuals are so discordant, they, they, they confuse you, and they make you leave the stock market. Here's the bottom line. As we head into next week, remember that we don't have one economy. We have an economy that's balanced on a knife's edge, two of them, a domestic, okay, and that's strong, and an internationally oriented one, and that's in much worse shape. That's the right prism to use if you want to understand this market. That's from when Billy says we're all going to die in the Predator. And if you look at today's market, the bad part of the economy, well, what can I say? As of 3 o'clock today, it's suddenly in control. Let's take calls. Let's go to Dan in Ohio, please, Dan. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I don't know. I'm trying not to catch a falling knife, Dan. What's happening? Uh, my question is about Ollie's Bargain House. Oh, had some bad earnings, fell about 30 percent. Should I dump it or do you think? No, I don't want you to dump it. But this is a stock that I get asked about a lot. And it's really incredible. Uh, And I am myself confused. I'd like to see Mark back. It was not a good quarter. I am telling you, it was not a good quarter. And the selling was right. So now we have to wait a full quarter to see if things get better before we make a move. My, My plug fell out. I'm trying to. I don't want my PC to die. It's probably more information than you need. Anyway, today's sell-off did make sense. Please do yourself a favor. Don't listen to any Fed talk for the next two weeks. Do one of these things that my daughter does. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Anyway, on Mad Money tonight, the trade war is taking a toll, but not where you expect it. I'm revealing not one, not two, not three, but four stocks to watch on China headlines. Then there's plenty of action in the pharmaceutical space in recent months with Bristol Myers and AbbVie both making big acquisitions. I'll tell you which could be the better bet for investors once their deals close. And Zscaler, how can I help you? Stock recently suffered its worst day since going public in 2018. But could its recent turnaround signal a time to buy? I've got the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I like to think I've been pretty clear-eyed about the impact of this trade war. But I never thought it would be this weird. I don't know what else to call it. Weird. Sure, the trade war is taking its toll in business. We know that. It's just not taking its toll where, where it was supposed to. 
I mean, that's why I'm a lot less worried about how the iPhone 11 will sell in China with the new phones dropping today. In fact, I'm actually excited about Apple's prospects in the People's Republic. How's that possible? Because the trade wars produced anomaly after anomaly after anomaly. When the president slapped a 25% tariff on imported steel to protect our companies from Chinese dumping, we were told it would cause prices to skyrocket. After initial faint hire, those steel prices, they've collapsed. Some grades are appreciably lower than anyone imagined. The reason? Well, a lot of it comes down to the fact that there's still a lot of surfeit of even just American-made steel. Some is because demand's weaker than expected. Either way, the whole point of these tariffs was to prop up steel prices uh, for American companies that deserve it because the Chinese have been crushing us, but it didn't happen. And honestly, the bizarre plummet in steel doesn't even hold a candle to the, to the paradox of Chinese demand. When the trade war got going, we were warned about the possibility of government-backed boycotts of American goods. Instead, we've seen a fairly dramatic increase Yes, you heard me, an increase in Chinese demand for many American products. Consider the contrarian case of the world's largest consumer packaged goods company. Consider the case of Procter & Gable. Yesterday, I interviewed Procter's CEO, David Taylor, at CNBC's Delivering Alpha conference, and he talked about the home run his company's hitting in the People's Republic. As he, let me quote him, take China. Several years ago, we were minus 5% sales growth. The next year, plus one. The next year, plus seven. We just closed the year at plus two. 10, end quote. Holy cow. The secret to Procter's success? They sell the best product at a reasonable price. That's how they're taking share from cheaper Chinese alternatives. Then there's Starbucks. Oh, man, here's a conundrum. It, it, they may be an international brand, but the company's still based in Seattle, for heaven's sake. They even had a big breakdown in their Chinese sales not that long ago. But CEO Kevin Johnson recently told me that business has been improving rapidly in China. He intends to keep building new stores to meet demand all over the country. Starbucks has a lot more room to grow in the PRC. The trade war doesn't seem to be hurting them at all. If anything, it's helping them. It's crazy, isn't it? Or how about Yum China, the owner of KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut in the People's Republic? There have been times when the Chinese did, in fact, have the equivalent of a state-sponsored boycott against KFC. But in the latest quarter, right smack in the middle of the trade tussle, Yum China delivered 4% same-store sales growth. That's fabulous. Okay, the company gave a lukewarm forecast, but they've always been pretty conservative. The fact is, it doesn't get much more American than than KFC, does it? Yet this business is growing, not shrinking. General Cho, uh uh-uh. Colonel Sanders, two thumbs up. Finally, there's Estee Lauder. Many hedge funds shorted this stock going into the quarter, betting that their, their Asian business would be their Achilles heel. Had to be weak, right? Trade war, unrest in Hong Kong. Nope, star of the show. In fact, Asia was indeed Estee Lauder's best region. If you look at how well all these American brands are doing in China, it's hard to take the doomsayers seriously when they start writing off the iPhone 11 in the PRC before it's come out. The lesson from these other products is that if Apple prices the new phone correctly, and I think they are, the numbers could be much higher than we expect. Chinese like a a value, value, valuable phone. My conclusion. There might be tremendous antipathy between our respective governments, but that bad feeling certainly doesn't seem to extend to the people. That's right. The people of China seem to like us. And and they've actually stepped up their purchases of many American products. They were supposed to be wrecked by the trade war. What can I say? Sometimes truth, it's stranger than fiction. Mad Money's back after the break. stocks, it's kind of like going to the library to find a good book. Some stories are a lot more compelling than others. Yes, it's about storytelling. When you've been in this business as long as I have, you start to notice how certain narratives often lead to big profits. 
And one of my favorites, when a struggling company with a battered stock makes a dramatic move to take control of its own destiny. That's a great hook. And when it works, whew, payoff can be enormous. But how do you know if management can pull it off? So far this year, we've seen not one but two ailing pharmaceutical titans try to make this happen. There's Bristol-Myers and there's Avvi. Lately, both companies had started feeling like pitiful, helpless giants. Their stocks became houses of pain. Even in an environment where many drug stocks have faced real headwinds, it seems like pushing down drug prices is one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans can find common ground on. Bristol, Myers, and Abby, you know what they do? They stand out as real dogs. <laughs> the former's lost, get this, roughly a third of its value since it peaked in 2016. The latter's down 40% in less than two years. That's some atrocious performance because the market's been pretty good. So both companies decided to take action, take it in their own hands. At the beginning of the year, Bristol-Myers told us they were buying Celgene, a former market darling with a stock that had fallen substantially from its highs, buying for $90 billion. Then in June, we learned that AbbVie's acquiring Allergan, another drug company with a battered stock, for $63 billion. These are huge transformational deals. The new AbbVie and Bristol-Myers will look very different from the current AbbVie and the current Bristol-Myers. The question is, which one do we like more? I mean, look, you can buy them both. That's just I'm trying to do an exercise of teaching here. I want to teach you how to evaluate these kinds of situations. So let's go over both of these massive mergers and figure out which one looks more enticing. Well, first, you've got to understand, all right, why this is happening at all. It's It's not like every big pharma stock has been getting crushed. See, Merck today, Merck was great in this environment. There's a big performance gap between the haves and the haves not in this industry. In the case of Bristol-Myers, they've been getting eaten alive by the competition, with their major anti-cancer drug, Opdivo, repeatedly losing to Merck's Keytruda in head-to-head trials. While Keytruda sales keep climbing, this thing is well on its way to doing $10 billion a year in sales, maybe more. Opdivo's numbers have, let's say, stagnated for the last four quarters. As for AbbVie, the pain here is all about Umira, and that's their black blockbuster wonder drug for all sorts of autoimmune conditions, from arthritis, Crohn's disease, psoriasis. In a way, AbbVie is a victim of its own success. Umira generated nearly $20 billion in sales last year. The problem? It's already peaked. This drug lost patent protection in Europe late last year. The first quarter of this year, Umira's international sales plummeted by 28% because of the competition. While AbbVie still has this thing locked down until 2023 in the U.S., they don't necessarily have anything in the pipe that can replace it, which is a big problem because Umira accounts for more than half of their revenues. You hear that? Half. Both companies need to do something major to get back on track. So on January 3rd, Bristol-Myers made a bid for Celgene, an attempt to combine the scale of a big pharma company with the innovation of a biotech firm. Merck's been kicking around Bristol's button in oncology, but Celgene has a huge pipeline of anti-cancer drugs, many of which are approaching the end of their clinical trials. In particular, management identified five different Celgene uh, drug candidates that they feel, because the market sure didn't, but they feel has serious, serious blockbuster potential that could launch within the next couple of years. Still, is that really worth the $90 billion in cash and stock price, the tag that Bristol-Myers agreed to pay? I mean, that's a lot of bucks. Ninety. Investors were initially skeptical, but I think management has begun to make it. Well, no, they made a compelling case initially right here on this show, but a lot of people weren't buying their compelling case. I sure did. 
You know what? They could justify paying $55 billion alone just for the products that Celsius currently has on the market. Another $20 billion for the $2.5 billion annual cost synergies they're expecting. That brings you to $75 billion without counting the drugs in development. When you include the pipeline, Bristol-Myers argues that Celsius is really worth $120 billion. If they're right, that seemingly huge price tag will turn out to be a steal. And I've got to tell you, I think it is a steal. Check, please. Now, uh, what will the combined company look like? Let's go to the source. Listen to Bristol-Myers CEO, Dr. Giovanni Cafario. It creates the number one company in oncology, number one cardiovascular franchise, very strong presence in autoimmune diseases. It generates value from shareholders for shareholders from day one. Uh, and it provides a path to sustainable long-term growth for Bristol-Myers Squibb. Okay, now they had to sell a few pieces of the business to get regulatory approval, including an important one that I was disappointed in. The government made him sell a Tesla. It's a drug I've always liked, but they got a lot of money for it. At this point, the company believes they can close on Celgene by the end of the year. The government has really stood in the way of what is a great merger, but it's going to work. Now, how about one that happened while I was away, while I was in Italy? How? Yeah! Ciao! How about Abvi Allergan? What a merger! In late June, I was in, I was in Florence. I was hiking the whole day this thing happened. Uh, Abvi offered $63 billion in cash and stock for Allergan. That's the bleakered maker of Botox, among many other drugs. It was a 45% premium to where the stock had been trading. But then again, it, it's less than half of what it, it, Pfizer offered for the same company for a few years ago because Allergan had some execution issues. And don't forget, it's also Allergan back a few years ago was a way to be able to get a, uh, get a real tax break. Now, Magic believes they can generate $2 billion in annual synergies here and other cost reductions by year three, and they expect the deal to close in early 2020. The idea here is pretty simple. Abvi needs to diversify away from Yumira, and they need to do it fast. Allergan gives them a lot of exposure to medical aesthetics, neuroscience, eye care, women's health, and by the way, I think a very effective possible pill for migraine when you get migraine. They see the deal giving their growth rate a substantial boost, too. In fact, they believe they'll have the best revenue growth prospects in the industry. I think that's hyperbole, also known as hyperbole. All told, Abvi expects the deal to boost their earnings per share by 10% after the, the, over the first full year after it closes, with that number eventually rising to 20%. Check, please. After the merger, Abvi sales will jump from $33 billion to $49 billion. Yumira will only be, uh, be 40% of the mix, down from 60% of the right, uh, right now. That's killed them, that concentration. Now, the new Abvi will also be the third biggest cash generator in the industry, behind only J&J and Roche, which will allow them to clean up the balance sheet, boost the dividend. Basically, the new Abvi will be a supercharged version of the current business, with much faster growth and much greater diversification. All right, so now we got to think. Which would we rather own, the post-merger Bristol-Myers Celgene or the post-merger Abby Allergan? I think both deals make sense, and I have waffled over this all week. And we were sending memos last night about what to do with this. And we come down, and doc, Dr. Uh, Kafari, don't take it personally, but I actually like the Abby deal at this point more. I mean, I'd rather buy Abby's stock than I would Bristol's. Why? First, I still have some concern about the new Bristol-Myers. Remember, they're buying Celgene for its pipeline, and, uh, not its current slate of products, which have some real issues, including the fact that their largest drug, Revlimid, loses patent protection in 2022. There's a reason they get Celgene at a huge discount to where it had been trading two years ago. But boy, is there a lot of cash. You know what? In, in 18 months, they're going to just make a fortune. On the other hand, 
While AbbVie likes Allergan's pipeline, they're mainly doing this deal to get their hands on proven drugs that are already on the market, especially Botox, which has a lot more uses than just wrinkles, and it makes it less risky. Second, while AbbVie won't say this out loud, there's a general sense that Allergan's been undermanaged in recent years. I'm being diplomatic. If they can just plug Allergan's existing products into their own infrastructure, it will produce immediate results. I bet it produces instant results. Third, putting the acquisitions aside, AbbVie as it stands right now is in better shape than Bristol-Myers. Yamira may have a limited shelf life, but the drug's still doing nearly $20 billion in sales. Best-selling drug. Bristol-Myers is nothing compared to that. Finally, AbbVie's paying it away. See, they got a 6% dividend yield. Bristol only has a 3.3% yield. The bottom line, you know what? I love, the bo- I love both these companies. I love that both AbbVie and Bristol-Myers are trying to take control of their own destiny by making a pair of gargantuan acquisitions. But if I had to choose... I have to tell you, at this point, I am going to say the better one to buy is AbbVie. And that is a decision that I do not take lightly. I think there's some drugs in Allergan's pipeline, notably the migraine drug, that are going to be very good. Let's speak to Patty in Florida. Patty! Hi, Jim. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you, Patty. My, my question is about Alonco. News recently came out that they are buying Bayer's, Bayer's Animal Health Unit for mm-hmm. $7.6 billion. Yeah. So now that that news came out, what do you think uh, about the future of the stock? Okay, now, you know, speaking with the people at Alanco, they um, agreed with my assessment, obviously, that I thought this deal was really good. And they should come on. Um, I think this company, I know, look, I know it's not Zoetis, but it's got, it will get to be something near Zoetis, Patty. Zoetis being the absolute best, uh, really an unbelievable company. I agree with you, Patty. I think Alonco's a buy. You know how I feel about the humanization of pets, correct? Okay, listen to me, people. Abby and Bristol Myers are two pharma titans trying to take control of their own destiny. They are both good deals, but I think the Abby Allergan tie-up is a better bet, and you should be buying Abby here. All right, we got so much man money coming up. It's been a tough few weeks for Zscaler. How can I help you? Could its recent decline be a red flag, or is it a buying opportunity? I got the CEO. Then it's an under-the-radar player working with the likes of Verizon and ATT, and I bet you've never heard of it. I'll reveal the name when I turn in tonight's homework. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with... Oh, we'll do a week that was Kramer. The last couple of months have been absolutely brutal for the formerly red-hot cloud software stocks, especially if they had the misfortune of reporting imperfect results over the same period. Which brings me to Kramer Fave Zscaler, the cloud-based enterprise software play that was one of the best performers from the IPO class of 2018. It's earning a fresh all-time high of 89 in late July. This thing ran straight into a concrete retaining wall. First, the whole market got hammered, and we got a rotation out of the high-flying cloud players. Then, just as some of the cloud stocks started to bounce last week, Zscaler reported a solid quarter. But underwhelmed in guidance, and the stock got steamrolled, plummeting from 61 to 49 in a single session. 
This whole move has been devastating, but luckily the company had a chance to change the narrative. Earlier this week, they had a well-attended analyst meeting where management got back to basics and explained why their strategy is working. Stocks now begun to bounce, up to 51 today. So is Zscaler finally put in a bottom, or do we need to be more cautious here? Let's take a closer look with Jay Chaudhry. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Zscaler to get a better sense of how his company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Chaudhry, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Okay, so Jay, we got to try to understand this. Even myself, I've been, you know, I've been a stalwart for Zscaler. It just seems like that the competition's gotten too great. I mean, I, I had Nikesh on from, from Palo Alto recently, and he just said, listen, I'm kind of going after everybody. Are you seeing a real disruption by Palo Alto and a real change in the narrative in your business? Jim, the answer is no. You know, a few weeks ago, there was an analyst day, and I got a number of texts. They said, these guys are talking more about Zscaler than themselves. You know, when paradigm shift takes place, incumbents and legacy vendors are often displaced. They feel the pain, and they try to attack everyone. That's really what we're seeing, but it's not changing a business. To do cloud security right, you need to have purpose-built architecture. You can't take the legacy boxes and stick them in a cloud and say it's cloud security. That will be like taking DVD players and putting them in a data center and calling it a Netflix service. I like that. That's good. That's something everybody can understand. But remember, Jay, part of the problem was a comment you made on the call where my jaw dropped when I heard it, which you were saying large deals taking longer to close. And what that said to me was that somebody else is sampling a competitor and therefore you're not able to necessarily have the run of the table as you have for so long. Jim, we had a strong quarter. We actually beat our analyst earnings. Uh, a target, uh, our, our, sorry, so our, uh, and a revenue target, we did 59% year-to-year growth. For bookings, we did 51%. Uh, the market is coming to us. We're seeing a lot of growth. We crossed 400 of the global 2,000 companies as our customers. So very bullish about the opportunity. Now, let's talk about two misperceptions about your company. The first one is a lot of people feel that Microsoft is your enemy, but it's really the opposite, as you explained at the analyst meeting, correct? Yes, very much so. Very good partner. We help them. They help us. And second, a lot of people felt that CrowdStrike was going to come after you. CrowdStrike, and you announced a pretty seminal partnership, correct? That is correct. Because CrowdStrike is a leader in endpoint security. We are a leader in cloud security. We are both complementary offerings, and together we offer better solution than a lot of legacy vendors. Right. Now, uh, there was a, you did have a little blue coat mentioned in, uh, in, your, in your conference, but isn't a lot of your business still um, to take from Symantec? And I felt that one of the reasons that Rick Hill was willing to part with Symantec and give it to uh, Broadcom, is that Zscaler has been so tough on them. So, so vendors like Semantic and WebSense were the first phase of replacement because where we sit is replacing those traditional legacy vendors. But our growth in the past few years 
is coming more and more by doing local internet breakouts, means having an internet connection at each branch office, and we provide security. So a lot of our business is coming from doing branch firewalls, data loss prevention, advanced threat protection, and the like. So we have a pretty broad platform. So we are not really selling just the type of solution, blue code and others sold. It's a full platform that customers are buying. All right, so last thing you need to worry about, uh, there's a lot of uh, talk on the network about the macro issues, that there are companies that are just not doing well. Uh, there was even a question by Brad Zelnick, a very good analyst from, from Credit Suisse, asking whether macro issues had anything to do with, uh, with some of the things about uh, trying to close uh, some larger deals. Are you seeing any weakness yeah. in the macro side for uh, cybersecurity? Uh, not really, actually. Even if macro issues start to happen, Zscaler provides significant cost savings. And the savings come from not having to buy and deploy traditional security boxes. They come from reduced operating cost, and they also come from tons of savings by not needing to have a private networks. So we think uh, we will be in a very good position, even if the market slows down. And we're seeing some of the largest companies. GE and Siemens have stated the kind of savings they have done with Zscaler. The numbers go as much as 60% of what they were spending before uh, in terms of savings. So we like uh, the market. We think we are well positioned uh, for the next year. All right. That's terrific, Jay. Thank you for, for coming on. Congratulations on the CrowdStrike deal and for a good analyst meeting. That's Jay Chaudhry, founder, chairman, and CEO of Zscaler. Very interesting company. Got to be sure that the uh, competition is dying down. Stay with Kramer. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Steve? It's time for the lightning round. Let's start with Karen. In California, Karen! Thank you, Mr. Kramer, for taking my call. You're welcome. I have been watching you since the Cutlow days. Holy cow, my old pal, Ar! What's up? Yes, and I'm a first-time caller, and I'm interested in uh, Thermo Fisher. Oh, my, I can't get a better company. I have to tell you, those guys, ah. I said my trust sold that we were like, we had like a double. I thought I was being a pig. Keep Mark Casper so good. Let's get him on the show. Let's get Mark Casper back on the show. John in Maryland. John. Yeah, hi, it's Jim. How are you? Hey, John. How about you? I'm doing fine. Yeah, actually, I bought a KTO stock a couple of months back, and it's going down, and uh, is it uh, better to hold it or sell it? Which one? KTO. Oh, Kratos? Kratos. Hey, I don't like, oh, that, that's okay. I like that L3 Harris more. The combination of uh, Harris and L3, which I think is actually going to get a lot of business. By the way, I genuinely believe that they're going to get a lot of business from Saudi Arabia and it'll be because they have the best radar stuff. LHX, I know it's a $200 stock, but I like it. Let's go to Janine in Florida. Janine! Jim, happy Friday to you. Oh, isn't it great that it's Friday? I totally agree with you. What's going on? It is, and I wanted to thank you and tell you you have a wonderful staff as well. So I appreciate you taking my call. Jim, i got to tell you, I'm excited about this company, Refugion, R-E-G-N, is the ticker. And I've 
been excited about the company, and it's gone on a bit, it kept going up steadily, steadily, steadily. And it's got all the right credentials. Tony Hunt is, seems to be doing a great job. They're doing all the right things, it appears. It's an but, exciting company. Well, let me ask you, Gene. Here's the problem, Gene. I mean, the stock's been around forever. The company's been around forever. And suddenly it caught fire. I got to see how this thing went from zero to hero. Because I used to think it was a bow wow. So I've got to come back with more information. I don't want to let you down. Let's go to Greg in Tennessee. Greg. Hi there, Mr. Kramer. Hey, Greg. Good to hear your voice. Ah, right back at you. Yeah, thanks. Hey, uh, listen, I, uh, my stock is HPQ. It mm-hmm. fell off a cliff back in February when they missed their numbers. I and know. it hasn't come back. Yeah. And uh, I'm losing patience, but I hate to take the loss I've got in it. Um, you think I... I think that... Look, it yields three and a half. I honestly, I think that thing, honestly, I, I not mean it. I think it's, it's dead in the water. If you're willing to wait, I think it's going to be like maybe two, three quarters, maybe. It's not a fave anymore. They did have a change in management uh, that is being affected that makes it so I, I like it less. Let's go. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Let's go to David in New Jersey, please. David. Jim, I love you from Asbury Park. Really? My daughter's really? down there right now. I'm not kidding. She's at the, oh. the, the Mexican place with the really good drinks. Uh-huh. You know, and then she's going to head over to the Family Dollar, the brand new Family Dollar. Have you seen it? <laughs> I love you, man. Listen, I'm calling about Funko. We're at an all-time high on Monday. Yeah, but then they did that secondary. It busted the short squeeze and taken it apart. The quarter was good, but it looks like that was just really, uh, once the short squeeze was alleviated, it went back down. I'm not kidding. you got to check the Family Dollar. It is gorgeous. You can eat off the floor, although I don't think that's wise. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the... Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Ah, the horror, the horror. Chipotle! Wow! It's like Secretary. <laughs> I'm a proud Costco member. Gold star. My wife Lisa's an executive club member. <laughs> She wards her status over me. In other words, the Bulls wanted Bill Belichick fed cheap, okay? We're got a new... What's the matter? Do you think my combine sexy? 2-0, soon to be 3-0, Cowboys. Booyah, do ya? Get out of my face. Friday, we cleared out a huge backlog of homework items that had piled up over the summer. Whenever you ask me a question about a stock and I can't answer it, I, I don't cuff it. I try to come back with a reasoned opinion as quickly as I can. So going forward, we're planning to do a better job of doing these in a timely fashion instead of letting them build up over time. So let's go to work. On September 10th, barely more than a week ago, see, we're getting it together. Ed in New York called to ask about a company called Digital Turbine. And, and uh, that's APPS for you, home gamers. And I said, I got to get back to them. Now, this turns out to be a speculative small cap software company with a stock that's caught fire over the last 12 months. What does Digital Turbine do? They build a platform for mobile operators, application developers, and device makers that helps them monetize mobile content and make more money per page view. The company's main product is called Ignite 
which is designed to handle targeted media delivery. Basically, they allow wireless carriers and phone makers to personalize the application activation experience and monetize the home screens on their devices via revenue sharing agreements with third-party advertisers. This is all about the desire to squeeze every possible drop of ad revenue out of every inch of digital real estate. Digital Turbine is sort of in the sweet spot for the moment because they don't compete with any major enterprise software companies, at least not yet. Their main rivals are either smaller players or software that larger businesses develop internally. Still, when I say this is speculative, I mean this is really speculative. Digital Turbine gets nearly 46% of its sales from Verizon and its subsidiaries, another 38% from AT&T. That's called concentration. Now, if you've never heard of these guys, you're not alone. Digital Turbine has actually existed for more than 20 years, but it's originally as a tiny company named Mandalay Digital. But then in 2015, they acquired a leading app installer called Appia, changed their name to Digital Turbine, and went all in on this particular business. Eventually, this pivot really did pay off. A year ago, the stock was trading at a buck and change. Now, it's, it's just under $7. Digital Turbine's latest leg up came after Canaccord Genuity initiated coverage on the stock with a buy back in June. And then the company reported a great quarter six weeks ago. Make no mistake, the numbers here, they've been just spectacular. Digital Turbine just delivered a top and bottom line beat, 38% revenue growth. Gross margins, what they make after the cost of goods sold, surged from 40% to 40%, up from 31% year ago. That is fabulous. But some more make more money. Their software is on more than 290 million devices, and revenue per device in the U.S. was up more than 30%. Companies also signing up lots of new customers, and this year they even expected to turn a profit. So uh, I've got to admit, this is an exciting story. Uh, let me give you a little flip side, though. I worry that we may be late to the party. Even though the stock has pulled back a bit from its recent highs, it's up more than 450% for the past 12 months. I worry that you might be chasing if you buy it up here. The thing about these relatively unknown speculative stocks is that there's a pattern to how they trade. Digital Turbine just picked up its first coverage from a major brokerage house when Canaccord came out and slapped that $6 price target on what was then a $4 stock. It's now at just under 7 Analysts rolling out coverage is one of the main catalysts for this kind of stock, and I, well, we missed the first one. That said, Digital Turbine, it does, it's got a lot going for it. I like the fundamentals. I just think this rally may be getting a little long in the tooth. So if you want to buy the stock, I think you can pick up some, but then I would wait for a substantial pullback. It is a wild trader. Oh, and please don't even consider buying something this small unless you're using limit orders. If you already own it, you've got my blessing. Even your ring, the register goes above seven. If not, Digital Turbine's got to cool off, and then you can circle back lower level. Next up on Tuesday, Adam in New Jersey asked me about Corn Furry. And because I haven't been keeping up with the company, even though I know the business very well, I'm not the stock. I mean, I, I know it as a customer. I told him I needed to do more research before I gave a considered opinion. Now, Corn Ferry is an executive search firm with a big leadership and talent consulting business that's very successful. When it comes to high-level jobs, these guys, well, let's just say they're one of the best recruiters. As recently as last year, this stock was on fire, surging to the highs of $67 for the Fed raised interest rates too aggressively and torpedoed the whole market. Corn Ferry came plunging back to earth, and it still hasn't really recovered. Now trading at 37 so far, uh, so for Adam in New Jersey, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that this isn't a complicated story. Not at all. The bad news, it's uncomplicated in kind of a negative way. Corn Ferry's gone from an outperformer to an underperformer because the company just simply hasn't been doing well lately. In the past 15 months, the stock has gapped down three times, each time because of disappointing earnings or in-line earnings with disappointing guidance. In short, the numbers here have been deteriorating. 
Earlier this month, for example, Corn Ferry posted some OK results with a muted forecast for the next quarter. Why? They cited everything from the trade war with China, the recession in Germany, worries about Brexit. That makes sense. Corn Ferry does. It gets more than half of its revenue from outside of the United States. Britain is their second largest market. That's where I know them from. And when you're in the recruitment of business, any kind of economic slowdown is going to hurt your bottom line. That's one bright spot. There's one bright spot here, though, is that this thing's now darn cheap. It trades at less than 11 times next year's numbers. But that may be because investors simply don't believe Corn Ferry will be able to make those numbers. Stock may seem cheap, but if the earnings estimates keep falling, it could turn out to be real expensive. My view, if you want to start bottom fishing in something like Corn Ferry, you need to wait until we have more reason to feel constructive about either the company specifically or the global economy. Until then, I see no reason to stick your neck out on this one. Long story short, when I look at these two homework names, digital turbines too hot, Corn Ferry's too cold. But if you keep these ideas coming, you can see, eventually, we're going to get it just right. So stick with Kramer. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Apple holders, steal yourself. All of the guys who hate the stock will come out Monday and say sales are light and the stock will get hit. And then over time, it'll rise again. But that's been the pattern so many times now. Look, we just have to try to profit. We can't just get angry about it. We have to try to profit from it. So my advice on Apple is to own it. Don't trade it. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. I'll see you Monday. Monday. 